Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing most excellently. It is Wednesday the 18th. Ooh, I think I actually got that right. Wednesday the 18th of October 2006. Show 365. That number means something. I can't really fit it into. I guess I've been going for a little bit under a year now. I guess I started November of last year, mid, mid to late November of last year, reading off some of my Rockwell articles for um, the sake of uh, uh, trying out the whole podcast thing. And I sort of very clearly remember the first time that I went off book thinking, ooh, can I do this? Can I do this? I think I can. I think I can. <laughs> and finding out that, yay, I think I can. So I'd like to talk this morning a little bit about sort of uh, incentives for a war, right? So there's all this question about when is the war in Iraq going to, uh, to end, right? I mean, it's a very central sort of question. And this really is uh, related to the question, uh, you know, when, does, when do wars end as a whole? What is it that brings about a cessation in conflict? And the one thing that I think we can say with some degree of certainty is that, in general, there is a cessation of conflict when you stop paying people to wage war. And that would seem to be a fairly a sensible approach to the question, and that seems to be somewhat in line with what we know about uh, human beings in terms of motivation and so on. So given that we're stopped in traffic. Uh, cost of Iraq War, September 06. That's fairly recent. Um, this is budgetary costs, not interest or future costs. And we have $378 billion U.S. dollars through the first half of fiscal year 2007. Of course, there's 2,709 U.S. soldiers killed in the Iraq War. Nearly 20,500 U.S. soldiers have been wounded in the war. And the war is essentially financed through deficit spending, so interest payments over time could amount to another $100 billion or more. Health care costs and disability benefits may also exceed $100 billion. Wouldn't be that unusual. Before the war began, administration officials projected that the conflict would cost only about $50 billion. Well, that's sh shocking. Shocking, I tell you, that, it's, uh, ten, um, that it is uh, ten times what the government uh, has uh, anticipated, because, of course, that never happens. Traffic is simply ceased to move. Well, that's all right. Um, the uh, latest national intelligence estimate states that the Iraq war is, quote, breeding a deep resentment of U.S. involvement in the Muslim world and cultivating supporters for the global jihadist movement. The U.S. invasion of Iraq allowed foreign elements into the country. Now there, these foreign jihadists are using Iraq as a training ground. And the increased role of Iraqis in managing the operations of al-Qaeda in Iraq might lead veteran foreign jihadists to focus their efforts on external operations. And, of course, the uh, U.S. is less prepared for a natural disaster at home when um, sort of looking at uh, all of the troop deployments that are over there. Oh, I guess the entire lane has stopped. Give me just a moment. Uh, for those of you who forget that I'm in a car, I want to make sure that I can get out of this lane. But, of course, everybody's screaming past on the left. So give me just a second. Ah, uh, and the guy behind me also wants to, oh, lady behind me, also wants to pull around. I really think that it should be the people in front 
who get to go, but uh, that rarely seems to be the case when there's a big traffic jam like this. So I'm going to have to be assertive. It's a shame, but true. Doo -doo. Ah, it's a stopped car. That will do it. And I'm sorry, my friend, but I'm going to have to invite you to ram me <laughs> if you wish to, uh, uh, to not let me in. Uh, sometimes uh, civility needs to be slightly more assertive <laughs> or people's better natures need to be slightly more prompted. So if you look at sort of, and this is based in $2,005, if you look at the war as a whole, you are really looking at a conflict that right now, <clears throat> excuse me, has escalated to cost about roughly more or less half what the entire Second World War cost. And you are also looking at a conflict that costs about half what Vietnam costs. So you're kind of getting less bang for your buck as time goes along, if that makes any sense. So that, uh, that issue or that problem that, um, that the war is costing an enormous amount of money is sort of important to, uh, to understand. Everybody knows that, that the war is, is uh, you know, huge a huge and fundamental ripoff and so on. And that uh, I'd sort of like to talk a little bit this morning. There are also issues. This is from a Reuters Foundation report. Um, Iraq, corruption and poor security stem flow of, of investment. $65 billion pledged to, to Iraq for aid and redevelopment since March 03. Only $20 billion has been spent. And sadly, about 15% uh, of the monies spent in Iraq are simply missing. Right. I mean, they're just simply missing. And so this is what I say uh, when I talk about the fact that war is simply a massive redistribution of income. I mean, that's really the fundamental. Uh, all of the nonsense about honor and so on, uh, it all really comes down to, uh, to one thing, which is that uh, war is fundamentally and essentially designed to transfer uh, income from uh, one group uh, to another, uh, from basically from a future taxpayers to current uh, taxpayers. And when you look at 15% of the monies spent in this area in Iraq, it's just missing. I mean, this is the 15% that people just can't even find, you know, let alone the percentage that is misallocated, that is charged in $500 hammers back to the state, that is um, uh, put to projects that have no particular uh, viability except uh, for um, uh, except for uh, fattening the purses of government contractors and so on, this 15%, and this is you know just the tip of the iceberg, of course, as far as corruption goes, but 15% uh, of it is simply missing, right? It's really quite fantastic when you think about it, but not surprising. And this is the 15% that they know is missing, right? So you could do an enormous amount of increase in that number and probably be still fairly on the mark as far as the overall corruption goes. The amazing thing as well, when you think about Iraq relative to um, what occurred, say, in the American Revolution, right? This is how far America has drifted from its sort of founding principles. The idea that the government builds a country is really quite astounding, right? So this is the way that, uh, you know, when you get an economy, uh, the, you want to get it sort of up and running uh, pretty quickly, right? I mean, that's sort of the idea. And the amazing thing to me, uh, though it's not amazing philosophically, but it's amazing that nobody has sort of really, really commented on this, 
the idea that what you do when you go and occupy a country is you basically go and uh, pour enormous amounts of government uh, spending in, and you have your engineers go in, your army engineers, no less, go in and build uh, schoolhouses and uh, other sorts of buildings. That I believe that they're spending $1.5 billion to build a U.S. embassy in Iraq. Um, I guess... I guess the barbed wire, alligator moats, and uh, uh, I guess uh, barbed uh, barbed pits and uh, Bornean men with <laughs> with blowguns are, are relatively expensive to keep the uh, people who'd want to kill all the people inside outside. But to understand why war continues, you just sort of have to look at the uh, you follow the money, right? This is a, a pretty uh, a pretty solid way uh, and a pretty certain way to start answering any question. Uh, who's, who's profiting? Follow the money. So you think of the billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that are going along with uh, this war, uh, the enormous amount of misallocation, the fundamental misapprehension that the army is the institution that is used to build freedom. I mean, that's just astounding. It really is astounding. It's like saying I do my customer service with a billy club with a spike on it because that's how I win over customers. Uh, I date with uh, a mace, a baseball bat, and a couple of date rape drinks, uh, pills. Because, I mean, the Army's about killing people, right? And the Army, uh, you know, in, in its zest to get closer to killing people can build pontoons and temporary bridges and can build barracks and so on. But the idea that the army is going to build any kind of quality uh, assets for the long haul that are sort of consumer-friendly and so on is, is patently ridiculous. And you just sort of have to go back to the American experience, right? It's all about, all about freedom, as they say. So you have to go back to the American experience and say, okay, well, how, did, uh, how was freedom achieved in America? Um, and, of course, when you could say that the army uh, took control of America after it ejected the British after the War of Independence. And so in a sense, you know, relative to the, uh, I mean, given that they're just people, right? Relative to the British Army, it was kind of occupation. Fairly, fairly reasonable to assume, I think. And how did they go about then building the country? Did they then say, well, what we need is to uh, ensure a massive amount of government spending? Did they enormously run everyone into debt and did they have the army going around building everybody's uh, schoolhouses? And did they have the army going out and laying down the railroads? And did they have the army going out and uh, building everybody's house and uh, building them a nice, uh, you know, refinishing their basement? And that this was all paid for through deficit financing and so on? Well, of course not. <laughs> Fundamentally, of course not. That's not at all how the either the British or the American experiments in freedom paid off, right? I mean, what happened, of course was that the army left. The army, you know, went away. And so I would say that it's important to understand just how ridiculous a situation it is that is going on in Iraq, that you have a massive sinkhole of government corruption and uh, theft and at the same time, you have this claim that the military is going to go about rebuilding a, a shattered economy, right? Because 
what you, you know you don't want investment you don't want freedom you don't want property rights you want trigger happy guys trained to kill who were about 18 years old who may or may not have completed high school but if they did it was a government high school and i bet you they didn't get a's right you don't want investment bankers you don't want entrepreneurs you don't want far seeing uh, capitalist visionaries you don't want the quote robber barons in there making life better and easier for everyone what you want is a bunch of pimply, trigger-happy sociopaths roaming around with their pockets stuffed with cash, and that's how you're going to rebuild an economy. Well, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous, and it's the complete opposite of how America achieved freedom. And this, of course, and, and this is known, right? This is, this is, if you say to people, did America achieve its economic miracles and did America become free because of a massive amount of government spending and U.S. soldiers rolling all over the place building everything for everyone, and people would say, well, of course not. Right? This is not unknown. Right? It's just unspoken. But it's not unknown. This is not a mystery. This is not some esoteric, you know, what, what was Catherine the Great's middle name. Right? This isn't uh, any sort of uh, uh, esoteric uh, historical fact. Anybody who's even taken a remote bit of education, especially in the States, would say, no, it wasn't a massive program of government spending that got America uh, on its feet after the Revolutionary War. And uh, you can also say, of course, that this occurred, uh, it would take a slightly, uh, slightly more detailed amount <coughs> pardon me, of uh, economic knowledge, but not a huge amount more, to understand and appreciate that after the Second World War, they didn't have the army come home and start building the, the sort of the suburbs, right? The Levitt towns, I think they were called. They, they didn't have the army. They didn't say, uh, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, they didn't say to the army, well, you've got to come home from... Italy and from Germany and from Japan and so on, and we're not going to uh, put you back in the civilian workforce. We're not going to decommission you. We're going to keep you there, and what we're going to do is we're going to have you start building all this stuff. So they didn't really take that approach, of course. Uh, what they did was they just decommissioned everyone, and they squabbled in Congress for about a year to 18 months about how to reintegrate everyone back into the, um, the labor force. Uh, this is a prime concern, of course, of governments, uh, how to reintegrate soldiers, because a congressman can't really take down a platoon of uh, Marines who don't get paid. So uh, this is where they really do get concerned about unemployment, is to uh, make sure that uh, the, the soldiers get paid, or, or at least aren't expecting pay. Right? There's a very, they learned the lesson from, from uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. And so... When it comes to um, uh, when it comes to the Second World War, sorry, minor reboot. We're back. <laughs> I'm just I I missed. I tried a, a little bit of a later route. It's sort of nine o'clock. I'm trying the public roads. Um, I once more got sucked into trying get any getting any value out of my taxes because, as I mentioned yesterday, I have a little bit of trouble sometimes with pattern recognition. So I'm trying to save a few bucks by not using the private roads, and instead I'm chewing up a th few bucks with my brakes. So eh, zero sum game, except it takes longer. But in the Second World War, of course, Congress squabbled for a year to 18 months about how to reintegrate the soldiers back into the economy. And when they looked up, everyone had gotten back into the economy. It's a sort of fundamental fact. As I said, that the war ended, the Second World War ended the uh, U.S. Uh, depression. It's not the case at all. Uh, the uh, depression really only lifted after the war, and it was only because the government uh, rescinded an enormous amount of spending and fiscal controls and regulations and tariffs and so on. Uh, that were put in place under Hoover and um, uh, FDR. So, of course, because they relinquished all of this stuff, 
and there was real economic freedom. And it, again, it didn't have that much to do with the court system, right? Uh, what people need is economic freedom. A court system is pretty tangential. Uh, a court system is sort of a playground for uh, people with really unstable and problematic personalities. It's not really uh, a, a useful thing for anyone to actually try and get uh, any any resolution of any disputes, right? It's it's for harassing people. Uh, it's for threatening people. Uh, you know, threatening a lawsuit and so on. It's as sort of was recently pointed out in California when a bunch of lawyers went around and offered not to sue people for five thousand bucks, like not to sue businesses. Then the most you know, sort of taught happy state ended up being the state with the first legalized lawyer shakedown. Uh, so the the court system as it stands is is for harassing people and for threatening people, and it is really designed to help those with deep pockets stay in power, right? Because if you have a couple of lawyers on staff and you're a big corporation, then you can threaten patent lawsuits, you can threaten, uh, you know, whatever, infringement lawsuits, uh, you can threaten harassment lawsuits, you can threaten unfair competition lawsuits, monopoly lawsuits, whatever it is, you can threaten all of those stuff to your competitors. And, of course, you can absolutely threaten smaller uh, businesses with lawsuits and get them to stay out of your territories. Uh, so it, it's, it's an instrument for harassing and, and controlling uh, the, uh, the minority by the opulent. It's got nothing to do with justice. And that was still fairly true even in the 50s, right? So uh, just so you understand, right, it wasn't because there was an excellent and exquisite legal system that the uh, economy boomed so much in the uh, post-revolutionary period in the early 19th century and also in the post-war period in the 50s. It was simply because, uh, as we've talked about uh, in uh, some of the stuff on economics before, it was just because people put down the guns, right? Right? I mean, it, I've always sort of had this, <laughs> I guess not always, sort of over the last little while. I've had this sort of vision of a cartoon or a, you know, a skit or something of, you know, the legislature sort of gets down and they all sit down at a big log mahogany table with nice little, nice little white china coffee cups and so on. And sort of one of them looks up and says, right, gentlemen, ladies, who are we going to shoot today? Right? That's... <laughs> That's the essence of government. Who are you going to shoot today? Well, what happened in the 50s and also what happened at the end of the, um, uh, of the Revolutionary War was that violence was withdrawn from the economy. And violence was withdrawn from the economy. And as a result, of course, the economy flourished. And uh, everybody did beautifully. And it was all great. And uh, everybody was doing well. And so from that standpoint, uh, it's just sort of it's important to understand sort of what was going on and what, what uh, was continuing. Uh, and what, of course, is not happening at all in Iraq. Right? I mean, the recipe for uh, growing an economy is very, very simple. You know, you just shot, you just stop shooting people. And they could do all of that as well, right? I mean, if they liberalized the economy and, uh, you know, they took the soldiers off the street and so on, uh, there would be certainly an increase in economic activity. Now, the degree to which this would be harassed and destroyed by the insurgents being funded from outside, uh, I don't know. But I can certainly guarantee you that what is occurring is absolutely hampering any possibility of economic growth. It may not be, and I certainly couldn't, couldn't even imagine, don't know enough, couldn't guess the future, don't speak Arabic, and can't figure out the, the, uh, the sort of money trail of the other side of the uh, sort of, quote, insurgents. It may not be the case that if they liberalize the economy, everyone would do well, though I believe very strongly that there's tons and tons of historical examples to show that that does occur. Uh, just look at Japan. Japan had this you know, psychotic, martial, top-down, emperor-based incredibly conformist Karashi kind of economy and culture and the moment they were liberalized uh, they all went for they all went for the bucks right so uh, that was all pretty uh, pretty juicy so there's lots of uh, evidence in history and of course when you look at the genocidal bloodfest that uh, you know Nazi Germany had become 
then it's, I think, somewhat easy to understand that uh, if you have an economy that has had, I guess by 1945, had had 70 or 80 years of a welfare state, uh, had a, you know, an incredibly uh, strong war footing economy, and yet when, and, and you still had people loyal to Hitler, right? It hit the youth sort of shooting soldiers all the way up to the end of the fall of Berlin. But the basic uh, approach or the basic fact was that when these economies were, uh, when the guns were withdrawn and people were allowed to uh, fend for themselves, then they actually became wealthy, capitalist, free, liberal, relative to where they were before, without an enormous amount of transition. And all that occurred was that the existing barriers to trade and the accumulation of capital and the transfer of property and the retention of property, they were all dismantled. Right? So all of the ridiculous uh, fascistic laws in both Japan and Germany, and Italy, of course, for that matter, were dismantled. And then, of course, they grew back over time because they are still socialists at the core and still trained in state schools. But that initial trans, uh, transmogrification from a, um, a totalitarian economy to a relatively free economy occurred without an enormous amount of violence. And again, I'm no expert on what's going on in Iraq and where these insurgents are getting paid from, but for sure, they're not doing it for ideology. They're doing it for pay. Uh, all soldiers fundamentally a mercenary. All the talk about honor is just a sort of distraction uh, away from the, uh, the transfer of income. And so they're really not that um, interested in bringing freedom to uh, Iraq because there's tons of historical examples about how to do that. And the way that, you, the way that for sure it's never occurred is massive amounts of government spending and twitchy soldiers running around uh, with the basic carte blanche to pump lead into whoever, who, whoever crosses them and to rape whoever they take a fancy to. Uh, that is, you know, that's anarchy, right? I mean, that, what they have there is in the classic sense of the word, in what people really fear about the word, that is, uh, is anarchy. And, of course, it's entirely um, uh, the opposite of economic growth. And it's anarchy in the way that I believe that the term should be used, which is a, uh, an executive uh, hierarchical hegemonic structure like the state with uh, unlimited power to tax and pass its own laws and pass its own regulations that's really anarchy. That's a state where you have, or a state, uh, sorry, <laughs> the, I used the word twice. That is a situation where you have no rules and an incredible disparity in power structures, uh, citizens versus government, uh, which, of course, is never going to, uh, never we're going to win, never going to get anywhere. And that is never going to achieve anything positive. That is real, that's real anarchy, right? That's the real anarchy that uh, goes on in society. So... I think that it can be very important to understand that there's no question that anybody is even remotely interested in bringing about a peaceful, prosperous society in Iraq. They know how to do it. This is not a great mystery. There's tons of historical examples. You ask just about anybody with any education, they'll know that it was not government spending and having the military going around building things that regenerated any economy throughout history, especially a post-war, post-invasion, post-occupation economy. So, of course, it has nothing to do with that, right? Because that would be, uh, you know, this, you're not asking people to invent the wheel here. So the economy uh, in Iraq, or uh, the society in Iraq, is certainly 
Uh, nobody has any interest in making people prosperous and free. What they do have is an enormous interest in, uh, you know, uh, becoming wealthy, right? As, uh, you know, as most, most people respond to incentives, right? A basic principle of economics. People respond to incentives. And, of course, the fundamental incentive that occurs in Iraq is the transfer of massive amounts of money. Money literally gets shipped there in cubic blocks of $100 bills. Money gets put into people's account to spend by people typing on a computer screen. The magic generation, and of course the whole thing is funded through deficit financing. But of course the magic of deficit financing, it's like uh, knowing that you have three months to live and buying a beautiful house on a mortgage, right? So you'll pay a little bit in terms of interest uh, up front, but you'll be long gone by the time the bills really become due. Other people will end up having to pay them off. Or more fundamentally, things will just uh, people will go bankrupt. But of course, the people who will go bankrupt aren't those at the, who, at the moment, who are currently taking right. Because Iraq, if you get you know you get to sort of shovel away a million bucks or half a million bucks out of Iraq, you can go and buy goods with it, which all you know, which are all real goods that work, uh, that uh, are are valid. Uh, you go buy a house; it's your house. You've got the deed. Uh, you go buy a car. You go you know put your money in a. Cayman Islands account, you've got that, uh, Swiss bank account, and so on, right? So you are transferring fantasy cash, right? It's like, in, it's like the printing of the money that the Fed gets into. You're translating fantasy cash monopoly money uh, into the real, uh, the real stuff, which is tangible, fungible goods, right? Transferable, or at least uh, uh, tangible goods. And really, that's what's occurring uh, in, uh, in Iraq, right? There's this sort of money spigot that everyone's bathing in. There's a daily lottery ticket that just about everybody wins. And what occurs then is uh, there's this constant flow. And what it does is it draws more and more people into making more and more of a fortune uh, in Iraq. So it's the destruction of an existing brutal, horrible totalitarian society and replacing it, that, uh, replacing it with a cashocracy. Right. I mean, replacing it with uh, a, a shell game of extraordinary money transfers from the future taxpayers to uh, existing people uh, on the take, in the know, and so on. Right. So it's, it's really it's the mafia gone wild on an entire country. I mean, that's, that's the basic story of Iraq. So then the question sort of becomes, when will the war in Iraq end? Well, if you don't understand the basic fact of cash transfers being the fundamental reason for the war in Iraq, then it's going to be very hard to come up, I think, with a sensible criteria about how and why the war in Iraq is going to end. It's a fundamental misapprehension. If you have this sort of fundamental misapprehension that you think, well, the purpose of the government in there is to stabilize Iraq, and therefore when Iraq is stable, um, it, will be, uh, it will be over. Right? They'll, they'll withdraw the troops and they'll come home. Or uh, when uh, the Iraqis take over their own, you know, as they stand up, we will stand down. Right? So then there's this thing about when Iraqis will, uh, when they will um, uh, stand up and sort of take their own defense on, then the American troops can be withdrawn. Or, you know, when, uh, who knows, right? I mean, I can't remember all the, the sort of future reasons, but it's always in the future and it's always sort of, uh, uh, you know, can never quite be quantified in any practical way. So uh, that's a very important thing to understand about, about war, right? All these reasons are nonsense, right? If you, and as I've talked about before in other contexts, um, you have to look at what always occurs, right? Now, what always occurs in war is massive transfer of, of income, of money, from the future to the present and from 
uh, those not in the know and without the guns to those in the know and with the guns. And so I can absolutely, I absolutely guarantee you one thing, that the war in Iraq will only, um, will only cease when the government runs out of money. That's the only reason that the war in Vietnam ended, right? It almost destroyed the U.S. economy. And uh, but that's why you had, you know, these price controls and so on, stagflation. I mean, it just almost wrecked the U.S. economy. So when the ruling classes realize that the gig is up and they're out of money, and they're either going to have to start raising taxes and get thrown out on their ass, or they're going to have to start cutting spending and thus get thrown out on their ass, then they end the war. <coughs> Regretfully, pardon me, I don't know why I've got such a throg frog in my throat. I do apologize. Uh, I, um, I know I could edit the video, but uh, that's frankly too much hassle for me. <laughs> I hate to say it, but uh, with two a day running 45 to an hour, it's, uh, you know, I don't mind doing the, uh, the recompilation of them to 100 megs to fit on YouTube, and I don't mind uploading them, and I don't mind annotating them, I don't mind creating the MP3s, and I don't mind editing the XML, but I'm not going to go into editing the video, so I do apologize for uh, the slight frog in my throat, and I hope it's not too, too unpleasant. So that's when war ends, right? And the way that you, you ask that of yourself is you just ask for yourself when... Um, when are you uh, going to uh, quit your job and not take anything else, right? So I'm sort of embedded in the software field as a professional, as a sales and marketing and coding and management and so on. So when am I going to, uh, to stop? When am I going to quit my job for no reason and not take another job? Right? I mean, the, n never, right? <laughs> never. I mean, and not take another job. I'll do it if the donations to Free Domain Radio um, stay at a sustainable enough level. Uh, for me to be able to do this full-time, sure, I'll do it then, absolutely. But when am I going to quit my job and uh, go and work for, a, you know, go and work at a donut shop or go and work as a waiter uh, at a dive? Uh, well, never. Right? That's, that's a fundamental uh, fact about uh, human motivation. When do people voluntarily give up enormous amounts of income and prestige and power and liberty and so on? Well, voluntarily, never. I mean, yeah, every now and then you'll get someone who reads The Brothers Karamazov and wants to be an Alyosha or something, but for the most part, people don't give up that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, unless, I mean, there's the Ted Turner gifts to the UN and crap like that, and the Richard Bronson gifts to global warming crap and stuff like that. But uh, that all comes with a, a whole load of strings, and that's really for prestige. And it's not like they it's money they would have spent otherwise. I mean, it's simply far too much money to spend in that kind of context. But I think it's a sort of very important thing to understand that people aren't going to give up the war in Iraq because it's simply so profitable. It's simply far too profitable for, for people to end it. And that's, you know, I sort of want to pry off any scabs of hope that you might have growing over this wound of truth, so to speak, and get you to understand that it's about the transfer of income, which means that it doesn't end until the income can no longer be transferred for whatever reason. Right? Obviously, it has nothing to do with WMDs because they didn't find any and they're still there. Now, obviously, it doesn't have anything to do with Iraq being stable and prosperous because they know exactly how to do that. But if they did that, they would not make any money. Right? I mean, it's a fundamental thing to understand. If the army can get contracts, then military contractors can make a fortune, right? If the army builds the schools, then people can make a fortune out of this. 
people cannot make a fortune if the private sector comes in and builds stuff. I mean, if it's not paid by the state, right? I mean, when it's paid by the state, it's all nonsense. It's all complete waste and, and destructive allocation of resources. But if the private sector does it outside of state control, then it's productive and positive and voluntary and good exchanges and so on. But nobody makes any money in the government and in the military and in the military contractors. Nobody makes any money if the private sector comes in and builds stuff and does stuff, right? So it has to be paid for by the state so people can make money. There's nothing really that complicated about it, and it's not that hard to understand. You just have to sort of forget about all the nonsense propaganda. So if you had, like, when, when are you going to quit your job is, is the answer as to when you are going to, um, uh, when, when the war in Iraq is going to end. Right? Or let's say that you, uh, you were in Iraq and you had some magical uh, device, some, I don't know, some magical device so, or, or sequence, some Project X that would end the war in Iraq within a month, and you were some contractor who came up with Project X that would make everybody go home, well, um, people would say, well, thank you very much. We'll take it under advisement, and there would be no incentive for them, given that they're making like $10,000 a week in pure profit sort of individuals out there, right? Um, and, of course, the soldiers are livestock. Right? The soldiers are getting paid one-tenth or one-twentieth what the private contractor is getting paid, but they're being charged out, right? I mean, the private contractors who drive around all the time delivering cheese and eggs, uh, they, um, uh, they get free, uh, free uh, protection from the military, which otherwise they would have to pay for themselves and so on, and they get paid for these trips, which, of course, are driving eggs from here to nowhere because it's all government stuff, so who cares? It's not optimal or anything like that. So they end up going down that road or that route, and they get all this free uh, protection from the military, right, which means that they don't have to pay for it themselves. So the private companies have no incentive in reducing the troop count, of course, right, all this free protection. So it's not a fundamental thing to understand about war. Wars end when the uh, treasury runs dry. Wars end when the treasuries run dry. And you can look at any war in history, and you can pretty much see that, uh, th I mean, it just makes sense, right? As long as you can keep paying your soldiers and buying more soldiers, then you're going to continue the war. But all the wars in the 20th century ran out uh, when, um, uh, when, the, uh, when the coffers were exhausted. And this also involves bribery uh, at the top levels on either side as well, and don't underestimate that. Don't think that all the corruption is simply within your own group. Right, the corruption that occurs as well, like you had the, um, the top echelons of U.S. society were illegally selling oil to the Nazis throughout good part portions of the war. It's one of the things that Ben-Gurion hung over the ruling class's head in order to get them to support Israel, right? So it's certainly not, it's not a corruption that occurs simply, it's international in scope. I mean, it's domestic in, in the majority of its rampant exploitation, but uh, don't imagine for a moment that the, um, uh, the Saudis are not, I mean, they're obviously getting hugely bribed from the U.S., uh, you know, and billions and billions of dollars of uh, financial aid. So there's an enormous amount of money transfer from, you know, the, the upper classes on either side of these supposed enemies. Uh, so that level of corruption is also very high as well. It's why in the absence of the war, you have the creation of enemies, right? And if you have uh, enough resources, you can simply bribe people not to attack you uh, or bribe people to attack you in a way that you can still defend yourself against. I mean, the amount of corruption that goes on in war would stagger the imagination. I can't even picture it. I just know... Uh, based on a variety of readings and researches that it definitely occurs 
and uh, it seems to be fairly uh, constant. So that's, you know, war ends when you run out of money, right? When does, uh, when does an alcoholic change? When he runs out of, he's got no money, he's got no family. He's got, when, when does an addict change his behavior? When he hits bottom, right? So this stuff is not, it's not wildly complicated as far as that goes. It's not, uh, you know, a huge head-scratcher about when the war in Iraq is going to end. You can tell exactly when it's going to end, uh, when uh, the, um, the U.S. runs out of money. And if you sort of have any doubt about that, you can just sort of circle back. And when you're talking to people about this, I think it's useful. You know, when are you, if you had an invention, this sort of Project X, that was going to put, that was going to put your entire business out of business, right? So if you're a computer programmer and you come up with some uh, thing that's going to put you and all of your friends out of work and you're not going to get paid a penny for it, are you going to release it? Well, of course not. I mean, who would? It would be ridiculous, right? And... You know, hence the electric car thing, right? <laughs> but I don't know about anything about that other than rumors. But, um, but there's sort of an important question, right? If you came up with some invention that was going to put you and all of your friends and all of your companions out of work and reduce your uh, income by like 90% and take you from a job that was enjoyable to a job that was simply crap, uh, would, you, uh, would you release it if you weren't going to get paid a penny for it? Well, no, of course you wouldn't, right? I mean, this is how a huge amount of human progress is, is stymied in the world, right? Is that uh, people have negative incentives for progress. And certainly, of course, if you look at, the, um, uh, if you look at uh, war, then there's an enormous negative incentive to peace, right? Which is simply the profits that are made from war. And that war is really an instrument and to, to absolutely abuse the word profit. I apologize for that. But war is an instrument of profit it is an investment followed by a return that uh, no other single agency or no other single state or, or situation can provide. As I talked about in, I guess, many podcasts ago, uh, this uh, sort of question about how much profit sort of gets made during war. It really is absolutely staggering uh, how much money gets made by corporations. Profits in the free market hover around 3 to 5% if you're managing everything well and, and doing a, a good job. Uh, of course, uh, profits in the war sector, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50%, 100%, uh, it's simply absolutely uh, without, um, uh, without limit, right? The profits that you make in wartime. So to blow the ceiling off, because there's no competition, there's no accountability, and this is, of course, funny, right, that the government passes Sarbanes-Oxley. It's inevitable, but it's funny that they pass Sarbanes-Oxley in a huge amount of economically strict uh, rules for private companies because we, um, we don't want them cooking the books and all this kind of stuff. And that is absolutely what occurs perpetually in the state. So I just sort of wanted to point this out in general, that there's no great mystery about when the war in Iraq will end and when the war in Afghanistan will end. Uh, there's no incentive for it to end. Um, there's every incentive for it to continue and to keep continuing. And it's, it's really going to end when they run out of money, when the alternatives, when, when the profit can no longer be legitimately or reasonably made uh, from the war itself. Uh, now, there is a you know, possibility of popular resentment towards the war and so on. That's somewhat possible, but most of the people who profit from war aren't voted in. So there's a certain amount of I have a certain amount of skepticism towards that. Although, uh, I guess Congress does have the power to withdraw funding, and maybe they feel that their own longevity as congressmen are threatened or whatever. It's, uh, you know, maybe that's all possible, and I certainly would be willing to entertain that. But most fundamentally, uh, it really only comes about because, of course, these guys will just get bribed 
to have the war continue more than they could make, unless they're totally just addicted to power, not to money. But uh, generally, it really only ends when uh, when the money spigot dries up, when the cupboard is bare. That's when they stop eating, and there's no possible incentive for it to occur before that. Uh, that has anything to do with the stated reasons uh, for the war, and I just sort of wanted to point that out. It's uh, probably quite interesting to have these conversations with people to see if you can't sort out uh, their thinking or maybe even your thinking in this area. But once you follow the money, everything becomes relatively clear. Thank you so much for listening, as always.